out of the atmosphere. So this is quite literally the biggest idea in space or energy. It, it really literally, you know, people talk about, you know, something like SLS or Starship being, you know, a big or big deal, but uh, it's nothing compared to the scale and ambition of space solar power that, you know, truly could provide, you know, a global and 24 hour, right? City appropriate industrial, you know, civilization appropriate electricity From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome back. This week's episode is the first of a two-parter. Of course, it's about space, which always means technology and capital, both the political kind and the green stuff. It's also about potential and promise of bringing that all together to solve the no kidding big strategic transnational threats to, well, our way of life, our civilization. And no, this isn't about curing cancer, but both of this week's guests say that space-based solar power added to the mix of other renewables will supply the reliable energy needed to power that cancer research and our critical infrastructure. 24-7, with an affordable price tag thanks to lower launch costs. Wherever you are in the world, you've likely seen your energy bills rocket, no matter the format, petrol, diesel, natural gas, and electricity. And that's because of a supply and demand imbalance. Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine and the necessary sanctions have made that imbalance much worse. It's forcing fossil fuel-dependent democracies to buy from authoritarian petrodollar regimes. Now, science tells us that ubiquitous use of fossil fuels has stamped a sell-by date on the environment. We know that wild weather, like droughts in agricultural heartlands such as southern England, punctuated by soil-destroying short and intense deluges of rain, is global warming's bounty, a nasty gift that the Department of Defense says will keep on giving. In a 2015 report, the TOD found that the warming of the planet poses serious risks to readiness, critical infrastructure, and international stability. The DOD is not alone in its estimation. Allies and foes alike, they see it too. So to understand the technology behind space-based solar power, how it would work, I reached out to Peter Gerritsen. He's the primary author of the first DOD report on space-based solar power. Here's our conversation. Welcome back, Peter. Well, thank you very much, Laura. You're no stranger to the Downlink audience, but for those who are new, could you briefly introduce yourself and also tell us where you are? Aren't you in Colorado at the United States Space Force's National Security Space Institute? All right, Laura. So I am a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council, where I I look at space grant strategy and run a podcast called the Space Strategy Podcast. And I'm the co-author of a book, Scramble for the Skies, which explores how great powers are competing for space resources even now. And relevant to this podcast, I was uh, the lead author on a 2007 Department of Defense report on a subject called space-based solar power. And as you referred to, uh, Dr. Goswami and myself uh, have been invited here to Colorado Springs to present our book to the National Security Space Institute, which has put it on the 
Space Force's Space Professional Reading List for this year. And we also have an opportunity to go up to the Air Force Academy to talk about the ideas in our book to them as well. You know, I've brought you on today because I need your help in explaining just what is space-based solar power. This isn't new. The modern father of science fiction, Isaac Asimov, wrote about it in 1941. It was picked up and developed by Peter Glasser at NASA. But isn't the idea actually much older? So, I mean, all the way back to Tsiolkovsky, people have thought about the idea of making use of, uh, of the vast amount of you know, in-space energy put out by the sun. And, of course, it was developed along the lines you talked about. You know, in a in a short story with Isaac Asimov, then later with a formal patent with Peter Glazer of Arthur D. Little. Uh, then there was a very serious exploration between NASA and the brand new Department of Energy at a much earlier time before we'd achieved cheap space access. It was revisited again by NASA in sort of the early uh, or sort of the mid '90s, and then sort of the last time was the early 2000s with their Fresh Look study. And subsequently, it, uh, uh, NASA um, sort of turned away from that to focus almost exclusively on uh, non-economic concerns. So uh, NASA turned to look at human space exploration and robotic uh, science and exploration. And uh, it was about that time that the Department of Defense uh, got interested in space solar power. And I was one of the privileged to be on a study that looked at just what an amazing idea space solar power is. As you were the primary author of that Department of Defense report, how did you even get involved? Were you assigned? Did you raise your hand? Or did you actually pitch this? And why did the DOD think that this was important enough to at least check out and devote those resources? So this is a great story. And I think it highlights the ability, uh, both the openness of the U.S. military to, uh, to tolerate the initiative of young officers and the ability to sort of lead from below. So in my case, I had uh, participated in, uh, when Andy Marshall was still alive, in one of the Office of Net Assessment's war games. And the premise of the war game was basically that a constriction in oil supply uh, and general energy supplies would tip off a, a great power uh, conflict. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to have been put uh, sort of on the on the red team side and uh, to look at space. And I came away you know, thinking that this was such a dystopian and bad future that there must be a lot of important ways in which we could try to get past this. And so I had newly become the chief of future technology for strategic planning at headquarters Air Force. And I had begun a speaker series and started to look at ways in which we might innovate around uh, declining fossil fuel resources at the time. So. Uh, there were there were interests at the time in looking at uh, catastrophic threats and looking at sort of systemic threats. We were starting to become aware of the possibility of of climate change. There was talk about peak oil at the time, and so I had scoured and had a number of authors that you know on on fission, on fusion, on terrestrial solar, and I uh, had happened across this idea actually on the internet on space-based solar and had in uh, NASA had at that pointed time about 2005, uh, they still had a website on space solar power. And so I called up the NASA headquarters and uh, John Mankins was, uh, he was at NASA at the time. He was head of their exploration system 
Clinton's initiative as well as head of advanced concepts. And so he came out and spoke to us at the Pentagon. And I think we were all pretty blown away by the possibilities that space solar power could provide to national security and long-term global security. And that excited a number of us. In particular, it excited a Colonel Hornacek and a, a Colonel Coyote Smith who was then with the, the National Security Space Organization, DreamWorks. And when we found out that NASA had dropped the idea, that there was basically no advocacy pushing for the idea, he uh, took the idea to General Armour, who was head of NSSO at the time. And General Armour uh, essentially said to Coyote, hey, this is too important. We need to do a study, even if we've got no money. And so Coyote and I set out uh, to do a study. It was actually the first open internet study, probably the first uh, government study conducted using Google documents and the number of Google collaboration things. And then that subsequently got turned over to Joe Rouge, who continued to push it. And we put up this document that uh, I think still reads true today, the uh, 2007 Pentagon Study Group on Space-Based Solar Power, where we made a number of recommendations. Unfortunately, uh, despite the interest of the Obama administration in addressing climate change, it was not picked up by them or subsequent administrations, though uh, our recommendations were uh, in large part adopted by the uh, People's Republic of China, who subsequently have made steady progress towards space solar power. So before we get to the geostrategic and security side of this, why not take us through just how space-based solar power would work? Right. So let's start, you know, uh, from, you know, why would you even look at this? So there's a concern that fossil fuel energy sources come with two downsides. One downside is that they're not renewable and they will deplete over time and you'll have to replace them eventually with something and something that continually renews itself. So that's why you've seen you know, one aspect of the push for renewables. The other is that because you, the way you use fossil fuels is through combustion, that releases greenhouse gases and as those become increasingly you know, trapped in the atmosphere, they keep more of the, of the sunlight in the Earth's biosphere. And that can have negative effects, certainly you know, changes on the globe that we might not like. So there was a, an attempt to look at non-carbon uh, producing and non-fossil sources. Well, renewables in general, uh, and solar in particular, you know, there's a lot of solar energy that hits the Earth. But the big problem with it is that it's only there you know, about a quarter of the day. You know, half the day it's in complete night, so you're not getting en any energy. And then you've got very weak sunlight uh, in morning and, uh, and evening. Added to that, you've got clouds that make it sort of an unreliable power source. You've got very different profiles of power in summer and winter. And that means that if you wanted to power a civilization, uh, on solar energy, you would need to have this immense investment in storage, or you would need to have an immense investment in transmission, or you would need to have an immense investment in backup power supply. So you're essentially having to build it, you know, build multiple power systems. Well, space solar power was an idea like, couldn't we innovate ourselves around this by putting the solar cells in a place where they're receiving constant uh, uh, solar energy or solar flux. And so it turns out that if you move a solar panel from a normal place in a temperate climate on the Earth out, you know, far enough into space that you're outside of the shadow of the Earth, 
that basically you're collecting like 11 times as much energy. The sun itself is like a third stronger and then um, it's constant and it's constant over the entire year. So you don't have the, the change between summer and fall. Well, it also turns out that we have the technology that has been demonstrated by NASA since the 1970s to beam power wirelessly using radio frequencies. And the atmosphere is transparent, meaning it, you have almost no losses, sort of the below you know, 10 gigahertz uh, frequency. But in order to do this, you need to build a pretty large satellite with a pretty large radio flashlight that's, that's pointing the beam directly down. When you now, say large, explain what that what large means. Yeah, large is gargantuan, like on a scale that we've not seen before. So to put this in context, in terms of mass, uh, the largest thing that we have on orbit is the International Space Station, and it is just 300 metric tons. But a solar power satellite and the designs that you typically see is going to be 8,000 to 10,000 metric tons. And it will not be small. So the ISS is like a football field uh, across, but a solar power satellite, the entire you know, gathering, the, the mirrors and the solar panels, uh, that's likely to be like seven kilometers across. And then the transmitting radio frequency aperture or antenna is going to be like a half a kilometer across. You know, and to put that you know, as a sense of scale in terms of mass, that is like the mass of an aircraft carrier in space. So we're not talking about a small idea. And we're not talking about building just one. If you wanted to supply all of global energy, you're talking about you know, building like 3,000 of these, typically in geostationary orbit, where they can you know, see a third of the globe at a time. But the beauty of that is that it is a scalable system to all of global demand about six times over. So everybody on Earth could have the U.S. lifestyle with air conditioning, heating, power, uh, all the compute you need, but there's no contribution to greenhouse gases. And in fact, you probably would have excess power to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. So this is quite literally the biggest idea in space or energy. It, it really literally, you know, people talk about, you know, something like SLS or Starship being, you know, a big or big deal, but uh, it's nothing compared to the scale and ambition of space solar power that, you know, truly could provide, you know, a global and 24 hour, right? City appropriate, industrial, you know, civilization appropriate electricity um, uh, that, that could fuel the entire world, even if we were 12 billion people on earth six times over. And let's get back to, you know, how this would work. So now we know that what would be needed in space is, well, as you said, gargantuan. So from space, that would have to be beamed down to Earth. How does it work from there? All right. So let's start from the beginning. So the 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 mirrors or the flat solar arrays, depending on the particular architecture, always need to point at the sun. And then the mirrors typically, you know, uh, uh, focus the concentrated sunlight on the solar panels. And then on the other side of the solar panels in modern designs is uh, basically a phased array antenna, not unlike what you might see in a modern fighter aircraft. And, uh, and that's essentially a, an electronically steered antenna 
that beams down something very similar to uh, what you'd use for your Wi-Fi uh, in terms of frequency. But the difference is that, you know, unlike, say, a, a, a light bulb that lights the entire room, which is how typical radio transmitters work, uh, if you have a large phased array, it's more like a flashlight. So you can send it straight down to a receiving antenna called a rectenna uh, that typically is about the size of a small airport, you know, a few, few kilometers around. And there you have a bunch of uh, dipole antennas such that, you know, this might look like, you know, essentially a bunch of chicken wire strung over the ground over a fair, fairly large area. And then that gets converted back uh, AC electricity to be put onto the grid. And, you know, many people, I think, falsely focus on efficiency because obviously you're going to lose, you know, power and conversion uh, from sunlight to DC current and from DC current to RF. Um, and many people assume that you lose a lot in transmission. You actually don't. Um, you, lo you lose very little in transmission and very little, less than a percent going through the atmosphere. And then the real amazing part is that the reconversion at the rectenna is like 85% efficiency. And most people don't realize why that's such a big deal. But if you're concerned about the environment, uh, it makes a big deal whether or not the, the power generator in the biosphere, you know, on planet Earth is efficient or inefficient. And so a typical fossil fuel or even nuclear plant is going to be like 30% efficient, meaning that you know 70% of the potential energy is being released to the environment just as heat. And if it's a fossil fuel source or if it's a nuclear source, that basically you have to cool off with water by taking away from your rivers. And so it's you know really, really uh, unfortunate for our rivers and agriculture if you have to pull a lot of water away uh, to cool a, a what's called a carno cycle or a heat engine you know if it's a it is, if it's a typical photovoltaic well photovoltaics you know today are you know in the 20s in terms of efficiency that means that you know 75% of the energy that's hitting those solar arrays are actually being locally rejected you know as heat in sort of a heat island effect in comparison, a rectenna that's 85% efficient is only rejecting about 15%. So it needs no cooling water. It, it, it has a much more benign heat island effect. And unlike terrestrial solar panels, it, it's 85% trans, transparent to sunlight, which means that underneath it, you could have agriculture, you could have pastoral uses. Um, there are any number of things you can do. And so it ends up being that after you look at all the different conversions that to get the same amount of power on, on planet Earth, you need about one-fifth the area that you would need uh, if you were going to have solar arrays, and you don't have to have the storage. So it plugs into the grid basically just like any other power source, but it is, in theory, much more benign for the environment and 24 hours unscalable. You know, the question that folks are going to ask is, well, with all this power being beamed down, is it safe for this to be somewhere near my backyard? I mean, I can hear the NIMBYs right now. Yeah, I mean, that is a persistent question that, that uh, every one of us starts asking. And again, it's like a phenomenally good news story. So, you know, early on when, when NASA and DOE did a number of studies, uh, you know, they involved the EPA and others to look at whether or not this had effects that we should worry about. 
And it turns out that the beam itself at the center of the beam is only about the sixth, the intensity of, of sunlight. And I remember when I first heard that, I was just like, okay, how is it going to be a sixth, the intensity of sunlight, and I'm going to get five times as much power per unit land area? Well, it's because your reconversion is so high in efficiency and because it's you're getting that power over 24 hours versus just you know a, a 25% duty cycle for solar. And so anyway, that's in the center of the beam, but the beam, you know, tapers off in like a bell curve such that at the very, very edges of the fences it is within the OSHA requirements, you know, the same safety requirements that you have in your house of standing outside your microwave oven, for instance. And then, of course, related to that, everybody, you know, is concerned, well, what will that, will that heat the earth? And no, you know, even if the entire earth, all forms of energy were powered with, you know, solar power, you know, you wouldn't even be approaching close to just the, the fluctuation in the solar constant. And, you know, you've relieved all that what's called radiative uh, forcing. So by uh, displacing the, the uh, contribution of carbon, you know, your heating of the environment is, is way, way lower. And as well, we already talked about much lower heat island effect. So it's a good news story on that. And then, you know, they did a number of studies on, uh, with much higher levels than would be anticipated for this on primates, on different crops, and everything looked, you know, really, really good. And then there were concerns about, well, you know, what if birds fly through the beam? Turns out the birds are not going to be hurt by flying through the beam, but, but you might have a problem that in wintertime birds would want to be warm, so they might land on the rectenna. So you'd have similar sorts of issues to airfields today where you have to continually clear birds. And then, you know, people are concerned, well, what about if an airplane flies through the beam? Well, you know, you wouldn't want to do that. It doesn't seem like it would likely be a serious issue, but you know, we constantly, uh, we have what are called restricted, you know, airspace areas now where, you know, I was a pilot, it's very easy to divert around a restricted airspace. And then the modern incarnations of space solar power uh, rely on, on what's called a retrodirective phased array where a pilot beam on the ground, uh, you know, basically commands the, the elements of the satellite to say exactly how and where to focus. And so it would be not be hard at all to come up with a system that automatically senses that something is coming close to the beam and shuts down either the entire beam or part of the beam. Uh, so more or less, it really looks as if um, you know safety is a is a you know non-story. Even in the center of the beam, you know it's like uh, I, I think what I heard was uh, you know similar to radar operators who you know walk up, you know it it isn't ionizing radiation. But if you had a chocolate bar in your pocket, you know, your, the chocolate bar might melt, um, but it's not going to like scramble your DNA. And then um, you're not going to have people in the middle of a fenced off area. Uh, it's not going to be close to your house outside of the wire. It's going to be in the same OSHA standards. So I don't, you know, when you think about the entire, uh, you know, risk profile of the comparative risk of unmitigated uh, you know, climate change of being dependent on fossil fuels that might have a constriction, you know, all the other safety hazards that you have with coal or nuclear. Um, you know, my conclusion looking at this was, you know, space solar power is the clear winner in terms of the ultimate green energy solution. 
not just green energy solution, but what I find so compelling is that, you know, global instability has always been linked to power, not just the political and military forms of power, but the ability to electrify industry or fuel up our road vehicles. Uh, back when uh, Peter Glazer was at NASA, I mean, he registered his patent for a solar energy capturing satellite in the 1970s, and that was at the height of the oil crisis. You know, maybe this is a stretch, but isn't the idea of gaining steam now for very similar reasons? I, China's moving ahead, actually moving up its deadlines for the program. I mean, it, how does this actually fit together? Well, there are a number of different reasons. So, you know, if you look at sort of countries that are very island countries, like, for instance, Japan and the UK that have active space solar power programs, you know, they are both uh, concerned about their dependency on fossil fuels. And in the case of Japan, they also would like to move away from nuclear after their Fukushima uh, uh, incident. And in the case of the UK, the drive for net zero is very powerful. The government have declared a drought for southern and eastern parts of England, but the Met Office are warning of extreme heat this weekend and the risk of thunderstorms later. You might be wondering how all these things are related. Well, here's how. Let's deal with the extreme heat first of all. Another very warm day for parts of Scotland and Northern Ireland, away from the north and northeast. But across England and Wales, it's the peak of the heat on Saturday afternoon with temperatures widely into the low to mid 30s and 36 Celsius. We will get back to Peter a little bit later in this episode. But just last month, Britain started putting its money where its mouth is and committed millions of pounds to start developing space-based solar power. And it's not hard to understand why, starting with this Friday's announcement from the Met Office. By night, and that kind of heat in a country where we don't have aircon in most buildings can cause health impacts. They can also cause impacts to infrastructure. We saw that in July with impacts to transport, to water supplies, to energy supplies. And that's why there's an amber warning for those hotter parts of the UK. And that continues until the end of the weekend. Now, it's not just this heat wave, nor previous heat waves this summer that have led to the drought. It is actually the culmination of the last nine months. And now my discussion with Martin Soltau, the co-chair of Britain's Space Energy Initiative, who started as a skeptic. Hello, Martin. Welcome to the downlink. Hello, Laura. It's it's great to be with you. Martin, I've brought you on the podcast because of your work on space-based solar power. But before we get to that, please take a moment and introduce yourself, Fraser Nash, and the Space Energy Initiative. Yes, so um, I lead the space business for the UK consultancy, Fraser Nash, um, and I uh, set up and co-chair the Space Energy Initiative, which is a, a, a largely UK-based coalition of, of space and energy companies and the government uh, seeking to develop uh, commercial space-based solar power. You're also in Britain, where the umbrella has traditionally been a necessary daily accessory. It's not exactly famous for bountiful sunlight and drought or wildfires, and that was until this July. Tell us what's happened in Britain and what's the general mood? I know we've we've had an incredibly hot spell uh, over the last 10 days or so. Um, record temperatures um, and, um, you know, government giving red warnings um, about 
you know the 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 dangers of hot hot weather and and it's uh, felt a bit like California. You started the Space Energy Initiative before this latest heat wave, and you have been involved with the defense and aerospace sectors for decades. Can you give a few examples of which organizations are involved with the Space Energy Initiative? It's got some serious defense and aerospace primes as well as power companies. Yeah, sure. I mean, we have uh, uh, major space companies like uh, Airbus, uh, Thales Alenia Space, uh, a, a number of uh, important energy companies as well, such as National Grid, and, and a, a lot of really innovative uh, organizations doing some cutting edge in orbit servicing and manufacturing research and development. And then we have, uh, excitingly, the government as well. So the Department for International Trade and, and our Energy Department and our UK Space Agency, all collaborating together in, in the Space Energy Initiative. And it's also relatively new, isn't it? Comparatively, we've we set it up about 18 months ago, uh, and it's been growing steadily since then. Um, we've recruited over 55 uh, members now, all with relevant capability that we'll need for uh, the development program, and who are all really strongly supportive of this really exciting and, and game-changing technology. It, it's now quite an established industry forum. Uh, we recently received uh, recognition from the Department for International Trade of, of the UK great status, which is given to innovative export organizations, which is a, a fantastic accolade. And we recently had a, a launch event in the House of Commons, which was uh, we had a keynote speech from the uh, science minister, George, George Freeman, MP. And at the same time, when the heat wave was ravaging Britain, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and the UK Space Agency made an announcement. What was that announcement and what does it mean to the development of space-based solar power? It's really exciting. Um, so we've been talking to the government for uh, some time about the importance of uh, exploring this technology further. Uh, it is ambitious. We've we've helped to bring the energy and the space parts of government together. And uh, at the Farnborough Air Show in the sweltering heat, they announced that they would uh, launching a space-based solar power innovation fund. Uh, it's uh, initially three million pounds, but it's quite quickly going to double to six million pounds. We hope, and that's going to fund early. Uh, technology development in some of the key technologies, particularly wireless power beaming, high concentration photovoltaics, um, and some some system studies as well. It's absolutely um, fantastic and really important to have this sort of government support. The interest in the energy behind this effort has been building for years, I mean, really decades. But how did you get involved? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So it all started with a conversation. Uh, a, a friend of mine is the technical director of a, a single stage to orbit launch company making a, an air breathing rocket engine. And he was um, lamenting that the government was not being ambitious enough supporting their, their, their launcher and noted that space-based solar power is the market. So I said to him, well, space-based solar power isn't a thing. So how can you expect the government to invest? And from that conversation, I, I took the idea to the government because we 
conscious that that net zero is is incredibly difficult to meet with our current technologies. Um, the conversation with government landed well, and they ran a competition which Fraser Nash won to do a techno-economic analysis of space-based solar power. And that was looking at, firstly, what is the technical maturity? Is it going to be viable technically? And can we develop it in time to make a difference for net zero in 2050? And secondly, is it going to be economically viable? which is absolutely key it's it's i think long been regarded by you know previous nasa studies that it's technically viable but always been a problem with the cost and we uh we did a substantial amount of work and we concluded that it's it's not only economically viable but it's actually highly competitive with some of the less capable renewables like wind and and ground solar and more moreover the the development journey creates very substantial economic benefit for the UK. So, so that's that's how I, I came to be involved. And then having produced this report with with findings that frankly surprised us, we we were surprised it was it came out so positive. We set up the Space Energy Initiative really because we were concerned that the government would need to see that industry was so strongly behind this incredibly ambitious technology if it was going to act on our report. And secondly, there was no, it, it, it needs the space and the energy sectors to come together. And, and they, they have traditionally no, no reason to speak to each other, let alone understand each other. So um, th- that was a reason for, for creating the Space Energy Initiative. And then thirdly, we've, we very much wanted to create something that wasn't just a lobbying body or an advocacy body, but was going to be capable of, of delivering a development program. And there was no natural organization who could do that. So it needed this, this new organization set up. Uh, and that, that's really where we are. The Frazier Nash report, um, which is called Space-Based Solar Power, De-Risking the Pathway to Net Zero. You know, even in America, it's seen as a seminal document. And it could be inferred that it pushed the UK government to invest in space-based solar power. What were your key findings that moved the ministers and the civil service and perhaps even some in the commercial sector to start investment either in time and capital? Yes, I, I, I think the, the main finding of, of, of a number of them was that the levelized cost of electricity for space-based solar power is comparable with wind and, and, and ground solar. And, and yet space-based solar power is, is always on. It, it's, it provides this baseload or firm power 24-7 through all seasons and, and weather, unlike wind and, and, and even more so um, solar in, in the UK, which, uh, um, as you pointed out, the sun doesn't shine very often. So um, that was really the, the, the game-changing finding, that, that actually this is economically could be complete game-changer. And net zero is is a is a legally binding obligation for the UK government. They're, they're committed to it legally, and and yet they realise that it's an extremely difficult, um, challenging target with our current technologies. And they recognise the need to look at new technologies. And if you've got if you've got sort of challenging problems like that, what governments need is options. And and space-based solar power gives this really exciting new option. When you were working on this report, 
what was the most surprising thing to you? You said that you were even surprised, which made me think, well, gosh, I mean, you've been involved in aerospace and defense. And I mean, what surprised you? I, I was surprised because I came into this from my conversation with my friend um, in, in, with the rocket engine. I was quite skeptical. Um, I'd vaguely followed space-based solar power um, and, and always thought of it as, as science fiction in the future. But when we ran the numbers and we did a detailed bottom-up cost model, and we talked to experts around the world, including John Mankins and, and, and um, leading space companies. So we were, you know, we were bringing in all of the voices to, to test and, and give some, some rigor to, to, to our, our findings. And the economics really stack up. And, and I think that was the biggest surprise for me. So a big part of this is energy security as well as net zero. And how would you define a secure energy supply and how does space-based solar power measure up? Yeah, so energy security is, is a combination of affordable energy, people have got to be able to afford it, and res reliability and resilience. You know, it's, it's, it's dependable. It's not subject to, um, well, clearly war or technology failures or extreme weather events. There's, there's resilience in the, in the range of technologies that you've got in your energy mix. And what space-based solar power does, it integrates really well with the other renewables. It's not competing with other wind or solar. It's, it's complementing them because it's dispatchable as well as baseload. It means it can be flexed to give the power when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. And um, moreover, it's extremely flexible in terms of export. So because it can be beamed anywhere in the field of regard of the satellite, you can set up uh, energy sharing agreements with uh, friendly nations, and then you've got a, a, an incredibly powerful, um, flexible, uh, energy market uh, without incredibly expensive fixed uh, interconnectors, you know, sort of undersea cables and so forth. And so all of this, and to particularly together with the low levelized cost of electricity, adds up to energy security. One of the key recommendations is to initiate a staged development and demonstration program. What does that really mean? Like, what does that look like in practice? Yeah. So from the uh, report publication, the Space Energy Initiative um, has taken the work done by Fraser Nash and it's built on that. And we've developed a quite an ambitious but achievable 12 year roadmap uh, to develop space based solar power uh, as a sort of first of a kind operational grid scale system. By I heard you say 12 years. 12 years. Yes. Wow. Okay. Walk us through. So um, we, we've, we're backing um, the UK's solar power satellite concept called Cassiopeia um, because it has some quite unique features, but above all, it, it allows us to have a much more investable roadmap. We can develop smaller products, in lower orbits and de-risk the technology more quickly than some of the other designs which uh, for reasons of architecture are 
uh, obliged to operate in in circular orbits and and the the the, the most typical orbit is is geostationary um happy to go into the the, the technical reasons for that if um, if, if you like so the the reason we've set a really ambitious timescale is, is is that this is a, an energy program all driven by by net zero. We really are trying to make a difference for for that um, 2050 timescale, and and that by then you you really want to have substantial power being delivered securely and reliably into the grid. So we've got to have our first of a kind by 2035, and then building out the cap the capacity um, thereafter. And how does the July grant actually support that strategy? I mean, it's three million pounds and then six million pounds, but I hate to say it like this, but I mean that's small change when you're talking space. It it, it is very small change, but it's a signal of intent by you know major government, which will I think have it will encourage others, and it already has. Um, uh, help to spark strong interest within Europe, with the European Space Agency, um, and and hopefully and hopefully others. I mean, this has got to be a global endeavour. So, although it's a comparatively small start at the moment, they've taken that money out of you know this year's um, spending review. That wasn't easy for them because it, um, it it was already committed to other things. So that that was that's good. Um, it will build in 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 future years. You know, assuming that the the work is, um, is is encouraging, and and I think government has a number of roles beyond funding. I mean, clearly um, we're hoping that government investment will leverage very substantially private investment, and we've already had signals from from investors that that's the case. Uh, secondly, this this needs um, international agreement on regulations and standards. Uh, regulations on 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 spectrum allocation, on orbital slots for these big satellites, uh, on the kind of um, operation of these these systems, which is responsible and sustainable. There's a lot of um, focus now on on sustainable use of space, and that's super important. This is above all an environmental program, and so the government support in 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 on all these different ways is really really important. We've spoken about affordability and investment, and affordability is a major thread within the report. And I've got to agree that at scale, the total taxpayer cost of 17.3 billion pounds to secure 24-7 renewable energy does not seem like a huge investment. But the report also states that the investment hurdle is um, a 20% a 20% rate, and, and that's a wee bit steep. I'm not really understanding how that all works out financially. And, and could you could you that explain that to me? Yeah, sure. So um, the uh, estimate of development cost is strongly factored by the cost of space lift, because these satellites are several thousand tons. And so that's a, you know, that, that's a dominant cost. And probably the cost of finance is a, the, the second one. And bear in mind that the Fraser Nash report was an independent assessment. It was it was impartial, and we wanted to not make over optimistic assumptions um, about particularly things like the cost of finance. So 
Um, uh, yeah, so the which is the, a smart the, thing to do hurdle. in this current environment for sure. Well, right, you're right. Yeah, I think in reality, of course, that 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 rate, that twenty percent rate, would come down dramatically as the risk was re retired in a in a development program. Um, but it was a, it was a sort of conservative starting point. We didn't want people saying, "Oh, you've 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 been too optimistic," and and you know, undermining the credibility of the report. Or that you've been like, you know, talking to Isaac Asimov's, you know, ghost too much. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's a lovely story, that. It is. And, you know, part of the affordability and, and, and the cost of finance obviously goes into risk, right? The more risky something is, the more costly uh, financing that project is going to be. And, you know, it's part of the title and it's it's part of, you know, the document all the way through about de-risking to get to net zero. What does de-risking really mean? I mean, obviously, yeah. financially, you know, something that has less risk means the finance is going to be less expensive. But I, I, I think I'm just scratching the surface there. Yeah. So, so, so getting to net zero means that we have to develop a range of new technologies and we need to change societal behavior and certainly in the UK um, we we have a we have we don't have a plan we but we have a number of pathways which are sort of scenarios that may play out if certain things happen so we're hoping that carbon capture and storage will become a thing but there are huge challenges with that both commercially and environmentally uh, and technology-wise, we're hoping that you know large-scale battery storage will become a thing. But again, it's not there yet by by a couple of orders of magnitude. And so, de-risking net zero is investing in all of these areas, these challenging areas, which are going to be needed, placing bets because some might ha not happen. You know, you, you, it's very difficult to tell whether. Uh, you know, you're going to get, get a breakthrough in carbon capture and storage and, or, or battery storage or, or, or societal change. Uh, so you've got to place bets on all of these things. Um, that, that's what the, the process of, of, of de-risking is. And, and as I say, you, you, need, you need as many options as you can to substantially increase the chance of getting there with these big unknowns. How easy has it been for the government to sell this expenditure to Parliament, or or have they actually really presented it to them? The reason I ask is I'm trying to understand, you know, how the UK government, which isn't known for being, you know, terribly frivolous, you know, how how did they move in this direction? Well, I think um, energy policy is 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 right up there at the top of the priorities so that i think is the the dominant thing this is very much an energy program it it happens to be enabled by space but it's it's first and foremost an energy program um and 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 strongly playing to helping us to get to net zero so i think that's the main reason why it's landed you know favorably with parliament and 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 often when we talk about you know these things it's about individuals and people like the uh, former science minister george freeman uh, completely got it we we met with him he was super supportive um and and um, hopefully his successor will be as well um similarly we met with the secretary of state for business and energy quasi kwateng again very very supportive 
Um, and so I think our messaging has landed strong well with, with the government. It's about energy security. It's about net zero. It is also about um, helping the UK's ambition in space. Um, and crucially, it's about sort of economic recovery and, and, and growth. Um, you know, the, the, the pandemic has left many nations a lot poorer. And here in the UK, we, we are very focused on inward investment, regional growth, um, and, and, you know, in, improving our economy for the, for the good of, of, of all the people. And speaking of the people, how do you predict this project could affect the end user's pocketbook? Quite simply, it's going to reduce energy bills um, in, in various ways. So we talked a little bit about the capability of space-based solar power to um, beam energy around, around to other nations and things. Um, and because it's both affordable and very, very capable, i.e. it's, it's baseload, it's scalable, and it's, um, uh, you're able to export it, I think this is going to create a, a, a really, really strong energy market. It's going to drive down the, the, the cost of energy to, to be, become more affordable. Um, and it's going to help those other uh, renewable technologies like wind and solar um, become, uh, if you look at the grid as a system, you've got to have that backup energy when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And so wind and you can optimize the functioning of the grid if you've got this what's called um, dispatchable power where, where it's you can modulate it to cut in when the the wind stops blowing and the sun stops shining and so overall as a system it, it it works really well and one of our members in the space energy initiative is imperial college they they do a lot of the um, thought leadership for government on next generation clean energy grids and energy systems, they are strongly supportive of space-based solar power just for these sort of reasons. Nevertheless, this is a two-decade project. Here in the United States, government funding lurches from one continuing resolution to the next before we get a budget. And while your system of government isn't as fraught, you're still going to need to get the public support for 20 years, no less. How are you going to do that? Yes, yes, you're quite right. It's a really important point. Both political support and public support's absolutely vital. Um, I, I think the commitment to net zero is going to be enduring across successive governments. So I'm kind of less worried about that. I think both the both both political um, colours here here in the UK are are going to be strongly supportive of that. And I think in terms of public awareness and then acceptance and then support, there's really strong recognition. Very often the public are aware ahead of the governments in pressing for, you know, the, in, in understanding the need for moving to renewable sources and, and moving off fossil fuels. But it's got to be done affordably. We cannot afford to create energy poverty. And so I, I think although this is a new technology and the public is rightly wants to be reassured that any new technology is safe, the characteristics of space-based solar power will will be you know quickly recognized and be I, I, I think we'll 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 find that there'll be broad public acceptance. We've had a lot of really positive um, engagement with with the mainstream media and and, and specialist technical. Um, when I talk to people, it, it's almost universally they get it how important this sort of new technology is. So what are the next steps? 
Well, so we're very actively um, raising funding. Uh, we've set up a, a, a legal entity, a company called Space Solar Limited, uh, which is essentially the kind of commercial arm of the Space Energy Initiative. Um, and we are, um, we've got a deliverable development plan. Uh, we've got the backing of the government. Uh, we're in conversation with uh, other international organizations who are equally pro space based solar power. Um, and I think very uh, close to getting, securing funding and, and launching the development program. How much initial funding do you need to, to launch the initial development program? Well, the um, you you talked about the the the, the phrase Nash estimate of about um, sixteen or seventeen billion. Mm -hmm. We think that with a collapse, reducing the timescale to twelve years, and we've optimised the development approach to make it more investable. Uh, the initial funding we're looking for is 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 a few hundred million dollars. Um, again, we we want to take this at pace to reach that 2035 first of a kind operational system um, and so we've very much got a commercial program uh, this is not just a kind of exploratory research and development thing that's done in universities and then you stop and pause and reflect this is a this is a program um, with um, uh, a, a clear focus on delivery timescales outputs and it's going to happen it's going to happen it, it is going to happen, yes. Uh, there, there are some really exciting investor conversations going on. Um, I think it's great that uh, Europe is, is super excited about this now, or at least the European Space Agency, and I think um, there'll be some, some um, realisation from the, the, the energy departments in those countries as well um, that we need to collectively look at this technology. Um, and I think um, really hope that in the US, you know, the Department for Energy there, starts to 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 look at this as well i think it needs to be an international endeavor martin thank you so much for your time welcome thank you very much laura to get back to the u.s national security perspective let's circle back to peter garretson within the united states you know it's linked those who are advocates in many ways it's linked to a much broader view of space industrialization and and long-term uh, sort of the economic case for space, as well as just a pushback and reaction against, you know, sort of the, the limits of growth, you know, school of thinking that, you know, would, would have you believe that we are limited to the resources here on earth. And so, yes, there's the constant concern about dependency. There's also from a national security perspective, there is the concern on uh, dependency on others. You see the, you know, the leverage that Russia has with its pipeline into Europe. And of course, some folks are concerned that with its active program in space solar power that, you know, China, you know, could put itself in a position of, of similar coercive power, um, you know, over, for instance, Belt and Road uh, countries that might, you know, purchase uh, space solar power. And, you know, we haven't mentioned it so far, but the Chinese have a very serious advanced program to achieve uh, small-scale power beaming in the next couple of years in space to achieve megawatt scale. And just to put that in perspective, right, the entire International Space Station is only about 100 kilowatts. And uh, now, you know, this will be more than 10 times that. They want to have a, a megawatt class prototype by 2028. 
And then their goal is by 2050 to be producing at regular intervals, gigawatt scale systems using lunar resources. So their uh, number two of the strategic support force was very clear that you know their ambition is to industrialize the moon to build solar power satellites. And that would certainly have immense consequences you know, for the globe, you know, uh, both, you know, good in terms of providing a green, green energy alternative, and maybe not so good because, you know, here you would have an autocracy that essentially would be peddling an infrastructure system to lock in others to potential future coercive power, the same as they're doing with their turnkey surveillance uh, systems and their, uh, you know, their pushing of their particular uh, 5G systems and their particular IT satellite internet systems and such. So, you know, if the United States doesn't want to see a similar situation to 5G and Huawei, it needs to be paying attention to what China's doing in space solar power. Peter, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Kavis Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. 